Blog Talk Radio. Sorry, good evening, and welcome to the NASCA Stop Child Abuse Now Scan Block Talk Radio Show. Uh, NASCA is the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Victoria Kelly, and I'm your host. For the same thing, my co-host is Annie, and we are on scan number 2309. Um, I'm excited to introduce to you a special guest tonight. However, uh, first, I would like to let you know that we have a single purpose here at NASCA. I have puppies in the background just so you can. I didn't know that. all that noise is going on. Uh, we have a single purpose here at NASCA to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional trauma, and neglect, and we so with those two goals. One, educating the public, especially related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting, showing childhood abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. And to offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information. For everyone interested in the many issues that are involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Again, here in scan number three, Jordan. And if you'd like to be part of a panel this evening, call in at 469511118, and the host will meet you on the line and if you'd like to have a question or anything to say. To have you join us and support our best, and if you'd like uh, us to recognize you or you have a question, put number one, and we can see that um, you've uh, asked to speak. So our um, special guest this evening is um, Jody Tedder from Montana, who is the president of LOL Inc., the Island of Immunity. Jody says it's a safe and nurturing community of healing for survivors of childhood sexual abuse and other forms of trauma. The words on her blog are certainly revealing. It's not just all self-love like we keep hearing. Love yourself before anyone else. I actually think it's the opposite. You can't really love yourself until you love other people, Jody goes on. When I lived at home with my father, I was favored. His favor included being backhanded when I showed the slightest sign of disobedience, rape, sodomy, and playing the game risk. She's outspoken, too. We don't seem to talk 
or hear much about uh, um, adults who are complicit in sexual abuse and other forms of abuse as well, including parents. On these episodes, we welcome various co-hosts and survivor professionals who will assist in fielding questions and lead a variety of topics suggested by our call-in participants. The trauma-informed perspectives of the survivor professionals will help them guide discussions on issues of child abuse, trauma, and healthy human sexuality that springs from questions and topics brought to you to us, I'm sorry, by our listeners. Everyone's invited to engage in tonight's show, and please visit the NASCA.org website. And again, if you'd like to call in, we'd love you to, and it's 646-595-2118. And uh, Annie, are you with me? Yes, I am. Hello. Good evening. Hey there. Yeah. Um, see that Jody is on. Yeah. No, I just texted the group, and so hopefully uh-huh. someone will contact her. Okay, okay. But we've good. got other people <laughs> on the line. Yeah, yeah, we do. And uh, how are you doing this evening? I am doing very well. I had a lovely day. Didn't work very hard, but I had a lovely day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, shall we pick a topic to talk about in case um, Jody doesn't come? She'll probably come later. Yeah, that's fine with me. (laughs) You know, one of the things that she said was about complicit parents. We could talk about Uh that. Sure. I would do that. Okay. Go Uh ahead. Oh, I had, oh, wow. <laughs> um, let's see. So I just had to quick Google this, and it says, if the non-abusive parent is aware of the abuse and there's nothing to stop it, it is such, it's such as calling the cops or leaving, they are complicit. They immediately take action to stop the abuse. They're not complicit. If they're not aware of the abuse, they're not complicit. So, the non-abusive parent, it's aware that they're aware of the abuse. But, you know, if they're aware of it, they're abusive. You know, <laughs> you know it's just in a different way. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. if, if somebody is um, knowing that their child is abused, um, to me that is just as abusive, you are not protecting the child, and that's your job as a parent protect the child, so in, you are being abusive. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Calling the cops or leaving. Okay, so then the issue about leaving is that leaving is not always that easy, and especially if you have children. Um, sometimes right. when you leave, if you have children, um, a lot of times, um, say you go to a battered women's shelter and you have your kids or your man and they put you in a hotel, whatever, with your kids, um, you can get um, arrested for taking the children and not allowing oh them to see them. <laughs> well, that's and ridiculous. So, or you could, um, they could say, I want to see the kids, and you say no, and like I said, you could be arrested. Or you could go see them just because they're their kids or whatever. And... Um, they could assault you or they could take the kids. And we had the woman from Missing Children Minnesota that was on, 
and she said um, the largest amount of children that are missing are taken by the non-custodial parents. And really? I'm sure that How are they so missing then? Don't they know where they are? Well, not if the non-custodial parent comes and takes them and, say, takes off to some um, hotel somewhere in another state or something, you know? It's right, take, yeah. You know, um, my grandparents, um, my mom would come into town. My grandparents were raising me. And my mom would come into town, and they were so afraid that she was going to come and take us that all of a sudden me and my two brothers would get told, we're going on vacation, grab something, and we'd have to, like, grab a couple pairs of clothes, run out the door, and they'd shove us in the car and take us up in northern Minnesota. And that was our vacation. Wow. That was the only vacation we had. But they, they were basically, they didn't want my mom to see us. <laughs> wow. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, so... Yeah, so that that you know it's happened in in a situation. So, and then also a lot of times because now they're calling explicit. Um, if you're in an abusive situation, even if there's domestic violence and physics, the kids not you know getting hit or getting sexually abused with their um, that child abuse. So what happens sometimes now is they're calling it complicit, or they're calling it you allowed it. So. The victim who can't escape finally does escape, tells them what the situation has been, and they take the child away from both parents. Wow. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of issues that come up with calling things complicit and complicit. But there are many situations I've heard drivers say that they, either the other parent knew or the other parent was told by the child and things weren't done to protect the child. I mean, they didn't even try. You know, and I guess that's where um, I'd like to go with the conversation um, as far as the parent knowing and and being able to, you know, be able to uh, be able to get the child some help or at least uh, um try to get help or at least acknowledge to the child that it's a truth and, you know, I'll keep you safe and at least attempt to do something to keep the child safe. You know, right. because as parents, we're supposed to be there for protection and uh, it, it's just really sad, you know. Did you have this situation in your experience, Annie? Yes, I did. Um Yes, my my mother did nothing, and I know that she knew about it because one time my father was in the bathroom with one of my siblings, and I asked mom what was going on, and she said, none of your business, just never mind. Oh, she my knows. God. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. How could you not know someone leaving the bed at night and coming back later? You know, yeah. how could you not yeah. know? Right. But then right. that was I mean, back in the 60s. There's a lot of situations where the other parent doesn't know. Um, you know, because a lot of the, well, most of the child molesters are very, very manipulative and deceiving and, you know, um, yeah. they're very, very hidden. But um, but when it's, like, like you say, so blatant, you know. 
But, you know, back in the in the 60s when I was growing up, women didn't go out and get jobs. That, that just wasn't right. part of the culture, at least yeah. not in my culture. Yeah. We didn't. And right. and right. Uh, and she had six children. Yeah. So, yeah. I you know, I sympathize, but not enough. I don't sympathize enough. I, uh, she should have yeah. done something. Yeah. Yeah. And I know my mom, um, my mom, my dad wouldn't work. So my mom will say to this, you know, well, not to this day because she passed away. Until the end of her life, she would say, I chose to be in stripping. And without even taking a breath, would say, because your dad wouldn't work and I had three children to feed. You know, so he what kind of choice is that, you know? Didn't have a very good education to get any kind of a paying job that would you know, support her husband who would in a three And she sent us to Minnesota when I was a year old, my brother with two and a half, my brother with three and a half. And I asked her later in life why she did that. She said, because I just got a feeling you weren't, that you were in mm-hmm. danger, you know. And she always said she was a mom because she gave us up. And I said, we're not a mom before she, well, on her no, you were not a bad mom. I said, you went with your feeling that we weren't safe, and we weren't safe. I found out later on, after being hospitalized many times, that I had been sexually abused before I was a year old, and it was by my biological father. Hmm, sorry. Yeah, but she had a feeling that we weren't safe, you know, and and got us out of there, and then she got from him after she got her kids to safety. And she sent us on a train with our babysitter in Minnesota for a easy time. So I don't think he knew where we were. But back then, it was more likely that a woman would get a children, you know, in a situation. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have no way to support us because he wasn't working either, you know. So he just, you know, the thing is, is that unless you're unless you're in the know and basically you're the person <laughs> that's in the situation, it's really hard to know <clears throat> what the person knows what's going on or not. Yeah, and it's so it's so taboo that it would never occur to anybody that it's happening. No? Yeah. It wouldn't cross yeah. their minds, really. Right. Right. And a lot of things that the laws were in place back then that, that things would, you know, like my mom said, there were no other women's shelters for her to go to. You know, where was yeah. she going to go by herself with her kids, you know, in 1963? You know what else? The Catholic Church told women not to leave their husbands. Right, right. Regardless, you don't well, leave she your told, husband. She told my grandfather that, that her dad, that um, her husband was beating her unconscious, and she had to get away from him. And his response was, you made your bed lie in it. Yeah, yeah. See, Catholic? And that's another thing, you know, even adult children, you know, what do we do in parent abuse situations, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I, I have a friend right now that, um, that, that, you know, co-signing on an apartment and everything else that her daughter ought to be, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't feel they can go tell their parents as adults. 
you know, and so there's yeah. so much. So much to talk about. I could about. never so talk to my mother to about it. When, uh-huh. As an adult, my mother asked me about it. If my dad had ever done anything to me, I said no. I couldn't deal with really? it. I couldn't deal with talking to her about it. You couldn't just couldn't get the words out of your mouth. No, I couldn't. I could. There was no yeah. way I could bring it out in the air between us. It had to stay secret. Wow. I thought. Is she still alive? No, my parents are both dead. Okay. Life is very much easier. Yeah. I continued to see my parents. Uh I didn't, you know, cut them off. I should have. But I continued to see them. Yeah. Well, what I say about that is we only only did what we did with information we had at the time, you know. And unfortunately, yeah. we don't have the we didn't have the information then that we, you know, and, and all, we did the best that we could with what we had, you know, and uh, you did the best that you could, and there's no right or wrong way to do it. This recovery. Well, I'll tell anyone listening that it's okay if you don't want to see your abusive abuser. Yeah. It's okay to yeah. not see him, even right. if it's your family. You don't That's have to. Right. Mm-mm. They don't deserve you to I, see them. Yeah, when I got sober, I didn't even see my grandparents, and um, because I knew, and it's Thanksgiving's come around, so this is kind of this was bringing up a lot for me this this month. And uh, what what it was that my grandparents, I tried one of the the Thanksgiving before that to not drink, and I went over there, and um, with my kids and stuff, and with my daughter. And uh, they're like, oh, just have a drink. And I says, no, I don't want to have a drink. You know, I'm trying not to drink. And, oh, come on. And I can't just have one drink. And I said, no. And they said, oh, so you think you're better than us now? Uh, And I just got this whole crazy-ass shit. I think it was within before that. But it just got into this whole crazy thing, and I, I just picked up a drink and drank it, and it was on to the races again, you know. So this oh, Thanksgiving, that, yeah, this one Thanksgiving, I didn't know what to do because, you know, it was this family Thanksgiving thing, and it was I was drinking, and so I ended up going to this A club with my sponsor. There was no alcohol, of course, and with my two kids, I had just got sober in August, and this was November, and. Uh, Man, I couldn't believe the difference, you know, of the atmosphere, the way the people were, the people in recovery mm-hmm. and the support. And it was just amazing. And, you know, I really realized that, you know, I needed, I, and I had to get away from my grandparents because it was dysfunctional, you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't want my kids around that kind of behavior. I want my kids around the negativity, and and I stayed away from them for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I basically told the people in AA and Al-Anon and stuff that I was going to that they were my new family, and they were. They were my chosen family. Yes. You know, family choice. Family all about adult survivors of child abuse, and that's what we say at NASCA, and anybody that's listening and anybody that's adult survivor of child abuse, you can be part of the NASCA family. 
you know, we are born into our family of origin. We don't have a choice about that. We do have a choice about the family we choose today to be around. Like Annie said, you get to choose whether or not to be around these people. You know, and mm-hmm. and even though, say, sexual physical abuse isn't happening to you, you still have a right to say, no, I don't want to be around them because of the past abuse, because of right. verbal or memories or whatever is going on because of for your healing, whatever, you know. Um, you have choices today. I'm, I didn't have choices as a kid. I have choices today. Yes. And we get to choose. We're adults. We get to choose. I'm trying to decide who to to see for Thanksgiving because it's going to be my family of choice. It's not going to be my biological family. No, no. And uh, they said that there are a lot of other options for people. And, you know, even if, like, with me and my kids, um, you know, a lot of the holidays, and I would just make it special, you know. It's like I had all these memories from these four holidays, and when I was a single mom and I got married, it was like, okay, I got all these memories, and they're, like, dragging my house down, I mean, literally. But I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to do something different for my kids, you know. What do I want this holiday to be for my kids, you know. And and really, you have to be creative. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of stuff that remind me of crap that happened, and I didn't know that ain't happening. You know, that ain't happening. Oh, I like the light. Let's do that. Or I like the, you know. And I can remember one year I was sitting there, and I was watching this Thanksgiving commercial, and it had this happy family sitting around and, they were had a turkey and all the fixings and everything else, and they were smiling and laughing and passing the food. I don't know what was by me, but I wanted to pick it up and throw it at the TV and scream, that's a lie! <laughs> I got a didn't because I couldn't afford a TV, so I'd have done that. <laughs> but I literally had to hold myself back from doing it, you know? Yeah. And that, that's, you know... Just an example of what I was keeping inside. Victoria, we have two people on the line with us. We have oh, well, we can go ahead and open the mic if you want. We can just have a conversation. Okay, here we go. We're going to open them up, and if you don't want to talk, you don't have to. Hi, guys. Hi, Philip. Hi, Judy. Hello. Hi, Philip. Would you like to add to the conversation, or do you have anything you want to talk about? Um, I don't have anything to say right now, but thank you. How are you doing with the holidays coming up? I'm excited for the holidays. What about you? Are you, are you excited? Good. Good to hear. I'm excited. Yeah. Are you in a good place for the holidays? I'm going to spend the holidays with my family of choice, and so I'm going to have a good time with people who love me. Oh, that's good. I'm happy. Oh, well, yeah, I'm having a good. lot of I'm having a lot of uh, really uh, bad memories about uh, the stuff that happened um, around Thanksgiving time, 
and uh, fortunately, I have a therapist, which I recommend everybody have one. But um, I've been seeing her twice a week now because I've been having a rougher time. And uh, we we talked, and she did this um, image thing, which was really cool. And I'm I'm practicing it on almost a daily basis right now. So she said, imagine that you have a box, and imagine a box that is going to be a safekeeping box. So I imagine a gold box with kinds of jewels on it, you know, and it's got a lock on it. And you have got a key in your pocket. And you take the key out and you open up the lock and you open the box. And anytime you have a memory that, that is really hard to deal with right now, put it in the box. Hmm. Got the box. Set the box and lock it and put the key back in your pocket. And then when you're ready to deal with it, take the key out of your pocket, unlock the box, and just take one thing out. Leave the rest of them in. Hmm. So, like, when you go to therapy or you're with a trusted person or you want to sit down and journal about it, whatever, you imagine yourself taking that key out of your pocket around your neck if you have a, want to put it on a string around your neck if you don't have pockets or whatever, you know, put it in a place. And, you know, imagine yourself going to the box and opening it up and only taking that one memory or that one difficult yeah, one thing. one at a time. That's it. <laughs> yes. 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 You know what I'm thinking? You could actually do it physically by having a small box and writing the ugly memory on a piece of paper and putting it in yep. there. Yep. I yep. think I have well, a box. I, have, I, think <laughs> I have a God box is what it's called. And I learned this in a, um, ACA, Adult Children Alcoholics, and Dysfunctional Families. And what it was is... You make a box, you get a cardboard box, and you can decorate it any way you want. Some people draw on it. Some people put, um, I have a friend that um, is very religious, and she's got some Bible verses on it. And you can put real positive messages on it and things like that. Um, So anyway, you decorate it however you want, um, color on it, you know, whatever. Or it can just be a plain box. You know, you can be a cereal box, (laughs) you know. (laughs) <laughs> but anyway, every time, yeah, every time you think of something that you have no control over, people, places, and things, or things that you're worrying about, kind of a worry box, things you're worried about, write it down, put it in there. <laughs> things, dreams that you, you know, like, boy, I really wish I had a house, because that was my dream for a long time. I wish I had a house, you know, of my own. And so long time ago, I wrote that down and put it in this box. And then... If you want to worry about something again, you have to go through the box and take everything out of there and read it. So say, you know, I I go through a whole bunch of stuff, and then all of a sudden I pull out the one and read it that says, I wish I had a house, you know, or I want a house. And pull that out, and I go, wow, I have a house. By the time you get through all those things, you realize that some of those things that you put in there that you were so worried about, have actually resolved themselves or they're not even an issue anymore when it seemed like such a big thing, you know? Like I dyed my hair and it turned orange. (laughs) Just write that down and put it in the box. And then, you know, a year later when you look at it, now some people take at the end of 
certain time every year, one of my other friends does this, certain time every year she takes everything out and um, she burns them all. She reads them and then she burns them all like in a, in a ritual kind of thing. And then anything that isn't resolved, she puts back in the box. I'm sorry that my dog is barking so much. Oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it. I've got some little puppies here, and I've got six little puppies. And, and every once in a while, they'll just be nice and quiet, but most of the time they're <laughs> crying and trying to get out of the old area I got them in. So. <laughs> Are they barking yet? Uh, some of them are, yeah. Yeah. They're on soft food. They're just adorable. I'm doing puppy therapy at my house. <laughs> oh. People are coming over. Yeah. We got another caller. You want to check and see who that is? Any? We do. Okay. I will. Yeah. Bye. Yep. Yeah. Vinny, are you still there? Yes, I am. How you doing? Good. Thanks for coming on. What, excuse Good. me? I said thanks for coming on. Oh, no problem. Yeah. No problem. You got anything you want to talk about? No, I'm good. I'm listening. Oh, we're trying to fill the space, and uh, Philip and I are both still on here. Uh, Philip, you want to jump in or Vinny? Um, I don't want to see Victoria. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. Go ahead. Um, I don't have anything to say. I wish I did. Oh, that's okay. Hey, I got some good news, Phil. I got what? I got 29 days off smoking cigarettes. I haven't smoked cigarettes wow. for 29 days. Yeah. That's quite a record. Yeah. I was spending I was spending ten dollars a day on cigarettes. So what I'm doing is I got fifteen days last month. I'm putting ten dollars a day every day away that I don't smoke. And so the beginning of this month I took hundred and fifty dollars out and I got them all on ten dollar bills and put them in a box. And every month I'm gonna take myself a mini vacation because it's three hundred dollars a month if I don't smoke. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's actually very good. I'm proud of you, actually. Um, I wish I'd thought to do that when I quit, because I quit way back in 96. I was getting, God, I I was getting um, chest congestion all the time, you know, all this other stuff. And the money that I spent, although it was much cheaper then for a pack of cigarettes, what are they now? Ten bucks or something? Yeah, about ten, if you're lucky. Yeah. So back in 96, I think I was spending like, um, maybe, I, and I'd get the cheap ones that are called Merit, M-E-R-I-T, because yeah. they were the cheapest. <laughs> and uh, I think I paid maybe three or four. And, but yeah. still in all, it was too much, and I was getting sick. Now, this is something yeah. that we survivors have to look at, you know. Um, so often, many of us, we do things that aren't good for ourselves. And cigarettes mm-hmm. seem to be the last thing that we stop doing. You know what I'm saying? Because we need that crutch mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I certainly needed a crutch, and I wasn't going to go back. I wasn't going to go back to uh, drinking again because I quit. Right. All right. 
Right. And that right. was very hard to do, too, all right? So in 96, I started getting really sick because you, you, you can certainly get sick from smoking too much. And I mm-hmm. went cold turkey. I tried putting 10 cigarettes out. That didn't work. Oh, no. No. And then I, and then I put five cigarettes out. That didn't work either. Uh, you have to go cold turkey. And, and that's well, the only I thing. People do it different ways. I know Bill quit, and he, he tapered down. But, you know, yeah. I tried to do that. I tried to do that this last time. Every time I tried mm-hmm. to go, I'm only smoking 10 a day, you know, because I was smoking a pack, which is 20 for those that don't smoke. Um, I was, you know, I'm only smoking 10 a day. I smoke probably twice as much every day than I did when I wasn't trying to quit. <laughs> But I had a collapsed lung met, oh, uh, quite several years back, and I didn't quit. Mm-hmm. I have COPD, I have asthma, I had pneumonia that turned into sepsis, and I still didn't quit. But Good all of God. a sudden, just, I just decided that I got 37 years sober, and what's the next thing on the agenda? You know? <laughs> like you said, really? we're drinking the next thing for my health, you know, and it's like trying to figure out healthy behaviors, whether it's adding exercise or eating better or, you know, doing more fun things for yourself, you know, like what can we do that that's healthy that's going to help us enjoy life and live the life that we really have always deserved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it's just a bad thing. But why don't we speak a little bit about child abuse, okay? Because I've been getting a lot of emails um, okay. about, emotion, about emotional abuse. We don't talk enough okay. about emotional abuse. I don't think people right. understand emotional abuse um, enough, okay? Um, we think when we say in our mission statement, you know, that, uh, that we have problems with physical, mental, um, emotional, it's in there, okay, sexual, and neglect, but we don't really uh, talk much about the the emotional abuse. So I'm just going to touch on it tonight, but do a real program on it. But since yeah. this was uh, passed it on to me, yeah, mm-hmm. I'll do that for next week sometime, whatever. But right here, since I can, I, I, I called on the regular number, I can use what I have right in front of me on the computer, which is very good. It says here, what is childhood emotional abuse? And people don't understand that. Emotional or psychological child abuse is a pattern of behavior, right, that impairs a child's emotional development or sense of self-worth. Now, I don't know about you guys, but because we were screamed at so much, degraded so much as a child, um, told us that we would never amount to anything, Um, you know, that we were stupid, or, or maybe even funny-looking, whatever, <laughs> okay? Um, emotional abuse are all those things from the past that, you know, linger in our brain. And what it does is it makes us feel really bad about ourselves. So we have a low sense of self-worth. And this may include from being constantly criticized, threats, uh, or rejection, as well as withholding love, support, or guidance. Some people are not meant to be parents, okay? Now, maybe the kid isn't being sexually abused, 
But there's all different kinds of other abuse. I saw this on, on our, actually on our Facebook in several different places. You don't have to be, you know, sexually abused to come on the show and, and tell your story. Because if mm-hmm. you were physically abused, and that does lead into emotional abuse, think about it. Mm-hmm. How many mm-hmm. of us were physically abused, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you go through all that stuff and you have people telling you that, you know, you're you're just not worth anything and you'll never be worth anything, then that pattern starts. And it's very, very hard for people to get over um, that feeling of low self-esteem because that's what we're talking about and feelings of, um, you know, no self-worth. I had it terribly when I was a kid, and, and most people do because, oh, you know, we're, we're told that we're no good. We can't do anything that's good, and um, what happens is many times we go for jobs, you know, that uh, are beneath us. I'm going to say beneath us because maybe we're really able to do much more, And uh, but you have to learn these things as you go along. So what do you do? How do you think you get over it? Okay, that's that's a, a very heavy question right there. You know, it's um, how prevalent is emotional abuse in childhood? Well, I just answered that. How do you recover from childhood emotional abuse? Number one, you learn to recognize emotional abuse. That's what emotional abuse does to you. You have feelings of no self-worth. Many times you're suicidal. It can lead to that. Understanding emotional abuse will help you begin to process and cope with what you've been through. You have to understand it first. Remember that it's not your fault. Document your feelings. You know how people keep journals and stuff like that? That's really a good thing for, you know, we as survivors, you know, as we're trying to heal. Or it's a good thing to do, to document your feelings. How are you feeling today? Are you having a good day? Are you having a bad day? And then start looking at why maybe you're having a bad day. And start actually documenting how time, say, in a month, we'll use a month, you have those feelings of, of sadness, okay? And uh, if, you, if a person feels depressed, first of all, and I learned this, if you feel depressed for two weeks or more, go get help. Because those are the people that are the sad people, okay? They're the ones that many times have suicidal thoughts. They may not talk about it. And then you have those that do talk a lot about it. And years ago, they used to say, nah, they just want attention. That's why they're doing this, okay? That's what the psychiatrists believed. They believed that. And then what happened was, yeah, and and a lot of us know this just from the way that we lived our lives. So what happens is that um, a lot of people were committing suicide. Mm-hmm. So then they had to look at it in a different sense, in a different light. Um, if you're feeling suicidal too many times, I mean, everybody can feel so low, Victoria, where they just feel, oh, well, I wish I wasn't here, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Well, you That's know, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, we can do yeah. that. That can happen to anybody. But if it becomes a pattern of feeling that sad, that um, you want to, you know, op yourself off, you know, or you don't care that you're alive, um, you don't have any, you can't see the future. You have Mm -hmm. no plans for the future because you're having too much trouble in the present. Then you have to go and get help. 
All right, you yeah. have to. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about suicide. Why it's such a uh, thing well, want, that you I can see. Well, I want to say something first. I want to go back yeah, to um, what you're saying. I want to go back to what you're yeah. saying about um, about emotional mm-hmm. abuse. Okay, I was involved with um, the Duluth uh, uh, Women's Shelter when they were ending up. Um, they did. Um, it's called the Power and Control Wheel, and it was put together by the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project um, mm-hmm. in Duluth, Minnesota, at the shelter through the shelter and the Minnesota um, Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And they have a wheel, Power and Control Wheel, that's abuse of children, and it talks about emotional abuse. It's and this is the definitions: put down, mm-hmm. name calling, using children right. as confidence, which is like you know telling them mm-hmm. stuff they really shouldn't hear, you know, like just because you need somebody, you know, in here to listen to. Uh, using children to get or information to uh, the other parent, um, being inconsistent and shaping children. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's really important uh, to know. And then I also wanted to say, instead of saying committed suicide, um, they are now saying died of suicide. Uh, also, I want to say that I was very suicidal and had suicidal ideations, is what they call them. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. wasn't that I wanted to die. It wasn't that I didn't want to live in the pain I was living in. I didn't want to live with the memories. I didn't want to live with right. the flashbacks. I didn't want That's to live right. with the not being able to go out in public, social anxiety, mm-hmm. all that kind of crap. I just was tired. I had no hope. I had no hope that anything was going to be any different. And like you right. said... It was much longer than, you know, it was long, long periods of time. And fortunately, I, when I first got away from my biological father at 21, I did go to a psychiatric institution or a mental hospital, and mm-hmm. I did good health. And so I knew that when I was down in those, like I was saying earlier, those deep, dark places, that I knew where to go. I knew where to go get help. And I would go get help, you know. I I would make sure to go get help, and I was married at the time. And my husband and I would go down and sit in the waiting room at the hospital and call his insurance and talk to them for two or three hours, trying to convince them how important it was for me to go and get admitted into the psych ward so that I wouldn't die of suicide. And they are over there tabulating their, you know, amount of money it's going to cost to put me in the hospital for 30 days. And it's really, really right. sad to me that you've got to beg for help. You know, and there are yeah. a lot of people that their insurance is not covering things. And so that's why I just love NASCA and 12-step programs and stuff like that because it's free. It's free, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. we're here. Carol's, Carol's on the phone list. I'm on the phone list. Annie, we're all our numbers are on the website. I just want people to know that if you need to reach out for help, our numbers are on there. Um, we're, we're ambassadors. We're uh, Carol's board member and all these things that we want to be there for you. We care about you. Like I said earlier, you could be part of the NASCA family. We welcome you in with open arms, and we will do everything in our power. Now, we don't have all the answers, but I tell you what, if we don't, Carol Wright, we'll go find them. <laughs> We will help you. <laughs> well, we well, let me say something. Let work. me say something. Yeah. <laughs> well, you see, I, I always make sure I have topics just in case, you know, if someone doesn't show, well, right? And, and, yeah. And, and, and uh, the, the person who was supposed to be here tonight didn't show. 
So this is one one of the things that was put on. Uh, I noticed this just a couple of days ago. My computer was working right um, about emotional abuse. Now I did work in a psychiatric facility, and I am a counselor. Okay. And when I worked in the psychiatric uh, facility, which was Greystone uh, Psychiatric, they tore it down. It was built in the 800s. It was it was gothic looking. I loved working there. It was cool. Okay, whatever. But anyway, we helped a lot of people, and a lot of people came in who you know were you know emotionally disturbed. And from the emotional disturbed, then it, of course, it affects the rest of their life. How, how do they live their life? And they didn't understand their feelings, and they did suffer terribly from suicidal ideations. And um, actually, before you end up in a place like Greystone Psychiatric, which was the second worst um, psychiatric hospital in the sense that you had the worst type of ailments, okay? I'm talking about ailments here. Uh, you were schizophrenic, uh, borderline personality disorders, all things like that, okay, um, which borderline personality disorder is one of the hardest things to heal. There's only one other place, and, and that was called the Vroom Building. That's V as in Victor, R-O-O-M, building, and that was in Trenton. If you got in trouble at uh, Greystone where you were very psychiatric and, and you were beating people up and beating staff up because staff did get beaten up too, you know. It wasn't just the other way around. Um, then you'd go to the broom building and then they'd send you back. Thank you. <laughs> okay, whatever. So, um, but the point is this. Yes, if people go through all of this and they end up in Greystone psychiatric and they have enough uh, psychiatrists who work there, not just counselors, but psychiatrists, okay, uh, and psychiatrists who care about the people and not just medicating them. Everyone needs medication there. I'm not saying no. But, Victoria, they would zone them out, okay. They would call the, the Thorazine shuffle. People don't heal that way. They need counseling. They need a psychiatrist, all right. So that wasn't very good. And you see so many of them in that psychiatric field that I worked in were very volatile. And actually one of the staff members did get killed, but they brought him back to life on the floor. All right, that was quite a sight to see. He died, but they brought him back. Now, what you have to understand is we get a tremendous amount of schooling before we're even allowed on these wards because the people are so volatile whether it be schizophrenic or borderline personality disorders. But each one of them suffers from different things. And one of the things that they do suffer from so often is emotional abuse because many of them came from backgrounds like we did and other people that we know, where they came from backgrounds with so much trouble in the family. Maybe they were sexually abused. Maybe they were physically abused. Maybe they were emotionally and physically abused. Those two sort of like go together. Um, or, or what are the other abuses? Being terribly neglected. With the suicidal ideations, um, if you don't go and get help, then your mind, you may not commit suicide. But you sit around and you think about it all the time, how you could do it and why you should do it. And it, it's a terrible battle because I had them too when I was a kid. I get it. I've been there. I think... 
a lot of us who went through terrible abuse at home, many times we do end up in the field one way or another, one way or another. And I ended up working there for some time. And I did leave because, and I will say this, about, you know, I, one of the patients got terribly beaten up by a staff member, and I had to turn them in, you know, to Trenton. I had to do that. You can't do that. That's not what we're supposed to be about, all right? So I got, to, I got turned off. And, and then I was told by uh, my supervisor that if I actually told the whole story, they couldn't guarantee my safety. Do you think I should have stayed there? <laughs> okay. So, yes, I, I did get out of there. Now, what it says here is, does emotional abuse ever go away? Living through emotional abuse can lead to trauma, impacting both your mental and your physical well-being. How many times are we, the survivors, sick from this and sick from that? And it seems like it never stops. So many people, you know, suffer from um, fibromyalgia, okay, who have been, you know, abused. And and that's a given. Um, One night, you know, on the night out, I'm up, I'm looking. Um, There were two doctors on, um, and they weren't trying to sell a product or anything. It wasn't any of those deals, okay? I get annoyed when I see that. But these two doctors were talking about fibromyalgia. So people out there, if you're listening, I'll tell you a little something about fibromyalgia, which I learned that night. One doctor didn't have it, and yet that was his, you know, his colleague had it. So the colleague started to speak about it. Now, he didn't want to discuss what happened in his home. He wouldn't do that. And I feel, well, okay, but let's talk about it. So the guy's talking, and he said that fibromyalgia at one time was something that was considered, oh, it's in the mind, it's not really real, it's just blah, blah, blah. It didn't get the attention that it needed, right? But today, fibromyalgia, now this is a doctor who had it and has it, um, is actually a real type of, of malady that people can develop because they have been so terribly abused. Um, it can be from physical abuse. It can be from mental abuse, emotional abuse, um, all the abuses that we speak of. And your body is actually screaming. Uh, it's screaming. And that's why we tend to hurt all over. That's what fibromyalgia is. So they're now today they're getting to understand fibromyalgia a lot better. And they're recognizing, in fact, the DSM-5, there's a DSM-5, and that's what you want when you look it up. Um, I think they're really looking at it, too, as being a definite type of uh, condition, medical condition, that, that, that people develop because of child abuse. So today, at least, I know what you were saying before. You, it was so hard getting help. Um, when people many times present themselves to um, the ER room because they're feeling like they want to commit suicide, a lot of times the hospitals have, you know, um, an area in the hospital where they deal with people who are mentally ill. They keep them for 24 days. That's nothing. If they don't have proper insurance, many times they just simply don't get the help that they need. And then you have those hospitals where maybe you've been caught trying to commit suicide 
or, or whatever the case might be, and you will end up in a facility, in a hospital like Greystone Psychiatric. Now, one thing I have to say, which is very sad, at one time we had over 12,000 um, psychiatric facilities in our country. That's quite a bit. Over 12,000, like Greystone. Okay, over 12,000. Today, um, so many of them have been closed down. Now, Greystone was closed down because it had so much, um, you know, the air was bad and it had, uh, what do you call it, asbestos. People were getting sick. I can do something for you. <gasps> you hear that? That's my lungs. And they had to actually, could you hear that? I don't know if you could hear it. I think I think you probably could. All right, that's actually from breathing bad air. So they had to close that facility down, that hospital down, because I saw OSHA coming in, which is an organization that deals with, you know, um, old, old, old buildings, even though they're great to look at, they're not healthy. So they had to close that down. Now, all the others that were closed down probably were not like Greystone. They were closed down because it wasn't cost-effective. See, that's what you're talking about there, too. It wasn't cost-effective, and that's not fair to the people. So I'm not surprised that you had a hard time getting the help and having to go through all the insurances and all the things that you were talking about because the greedy people who were running these hospitals or other types of facilities or satellite divisions of Greystone Psychiatric or any of the others, um, if they weren't making enough money, then they would rather just close it down because it wasn't cost-effective, okay? So then you have these people who many times end up on the street. And why does that happen? That happens because... Um, the families can't handle them. They're so volatile so often because of the mental conditions that they experience and are going through. Um, okay, they they throw them out. So I worked with the uh, the homeless for a while in New York City. I'm a New Yorker, and I, I saw all this terrible stuff. And a lot of them had mental issues. Some had been in facilities that had closed down. They ended up out on the street. And so did the vets. What a shame. The guys that went out fighting for our country, many times there were vets. They couldn't be handled at home because they had conditions, uh, but mostly physical with them, okay? But still, no, they they couldn't deal with them. And the VA wasn't doing as much as they should for them. So they ended up being thrown out or being put in an apartment and how they didn't get enough money to live and they ended up out on the streets. They ended up out homeless. And then, of course, you have your drug addicts and they're going to be out on the streets, okay? So you have a combination of people who end up homeless and out on the street and you have those who are psychiatric and they can't be handled at home. So we went from well, over 12,000. Let's talk about survivors because you're kind of analyzing everything and putting it in an us and them. And them is almost every them you said is me. I was homeless. Okay, I well, I'm, I'm telling you this. And yeah. I feel like okay, you're. We'll get back I to feel that. like we'll you're clinicalizing everything and turning it into a discussion about um, it's you looking at and other people, people in a certain this. way. 
I, okay, Victoria, hold on a second. These are things that you were bringing up, and what I did was I brought it out. And people okay, need to know these things. Show. Okay. Okay, but what we can do, what we can do is we can talk about what's right here because this is also emotional abuse. Does it ever go away? What do you think? Do you think that it ever goes away? People who are emotionally abused? I don't know if you do or not. Um, Annie, do you think that people who are emotionally abused, do you think that it ever goes away? Okay, shall we try this again? Annie? Okay. Now, this is not how you treat your vice president. Your vice president is trying to help you. 